Well, hello, church. It is, as always, good to be with you today. As you are undoubtedly aware, at this point, we are working through the New Testament in the middle of a series in which we are taking each of the books and dissecting their primary points, their purposes, looking at the overall purpose and message and context of a book in order that we might have a framework then to go and read them ourselves or study them more in depth and not lose sight of the big picture of the letter as we go through verse by verse in a daily devotion or through a Bible study or whatever the case may be. For the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at Paul. Two weeks ago, we talked about some of the history and the context around Paul himself, his life, his conversion, his ministry, how he went about that. And last week, we looked at the books of First and Second Thessalonians, which are widely held to be his first letters to his churches. We talked about the theme of apocalypse and the way in which Paul was writing to this church in order to instill in them a sense of urgency, the idea that at any moment Jesus might be returning. And that requires that we behave in a certain way, that we ought to be living them then and us now with a sense of urgency, with a priority on the gospel, spreading the message, living rightly, loving one another. Um, We talked about how Part of our problem in understanding that letter and that idea is that over the 2,000 years of the church that has existed since then, the concept of apocalypse has morphed. In modern-day usage, it typically refers to this cataclysmic end-of-the-world scenario, and that's what we mean by an apocalypse. But what it meant then, and it's sort of true biblical meaning, is simply an unveiling or a revealing uh, the book of Revelation which is a translation of apocalypse, is a revealing to John of the true nature of the world. And that was what Paul was doing in his letters to the Thessalonians. It was providing them with a truer understanding of the world, peeling the veil or the the curtain back on their understanding of the world to frame their purpose and their ministry and the way they ought to live and what they ought to be doing in light of the truer reality of the world. There are a number of ideas and concepts that are like that, that of apocalypse, that have over the course of the years and the the centuries and generations of the church have changed their meaning. And that happens largely because the meaning changes in a larger culture. And so, as we use that word in the culture, and then we turn to the text, well, we assume we know what that word means. But we find out in some cases that meaning has shifted on us, and we need to do some work to really re-understand and rediscover what that meaning was in the Hebrew text, what that meaning was in the world of Jesus, in the world of Paul, in the world of the early church. How were these terms being used? Because it is in doing that that we get and we dive down deep into that understanding and that meaning, and we can recover some of what we've lost and recapture uh, a more true and more biblical understanding of what is being said. Today, rather than dealing with a particular book, we are going to talk about the concept of righteousness. The reason that we would do this is that as we get into Paul's text, we are going to see this term and these concepts cropping up all over the place. Paul uses the term righteousness, justification, justice, all over the place as he talks about God, as he talks about what Jesus has been doing, what what Jesus has done for us, how we ought to approach God and the world. These are the terms that he uses. And much like the term apocalypse has morphed in its meaning, righteousness has done that as well. And so today we're gonna take the time to recover its original contextual, biblical and historical meaning 
as we do that today, we're gonna to take some time to talk about how we got where we are today, what happened and, and how we think about it. Then we're gonna go back and look at how the Old Testament uses it. We're gonna look at quite a bit of scripture out of the Psalms and Isaiah. Uh, then we're gonna talk about what that means for Paul's discussion. And most importantly for us, what, what does that all mean for us and how we understand not only what Paul was saying, but what God is saying to us about how we ought to be living in this world. I will add just a note. I, will, I just wanna acknowledge that today is a little more heady. Uh, so feel free to pause this and go grab a notebook and a piece of paper to jot down some notes, or if you want to just listen to it and then come back later and maybe go back through it. Uh, it it's gonna be a little, little dense, but I believe it's one of those days that if we take seriously and we understand what's going on, once you see what we're talking about today, it's one of those things you can't unsee, and it will, will very much open up much of scripture and, and much of God's purposes in the world uh, to grasp what is, what is being said here, what Paul's saying, what the Bible's saying, because the idea of righteousness, the idea of being righteous, acting in just ways and being justified is a theme it's perhaps arguably the theme of the text of the entire Bible, and it, it shows up across the board in just about every book of the Bible. So it's an important day. And so I encourage you to hang with me, uh, listen to this more than once, share it with friends. If you have questions, please ask. It is important to understand what these original meanings were because like I said, it frames every other conversation that we're gonna have around not only Paul's work, but the work of Jesus and and, again, what we're supposed to be doing in this world with our time and our energy as we, as we are here. So to start off, we need to go back about 400 years before Jesus shows up, 400 BC, there was a philosopher known as Plato, and you may be familiar with that name uh, in all likelihood, but you may not be so familiar with his philosophy and his teaching. One of the things that has stuck with the world uh, about Plato and his work and his thought and his teaching is this concept of what he considered platonic forms. For Plato, everything existed as an essence. There were universal paradigms, universal examples or blueprints that existed of everything. And that every instance of that thing in our world was a representation of that what he calls form that exists in the realm of form. So what does that mean? Let's, let's use the idea, concept, the thing we know as chair. So for Plato, there exists this world of forms in which there is the ideal quintessential chair, the perfect chair. Every instance of chair in our world is some representation of that idealized form of chair. So every instance in our world of chair is not the perfect chair, but some reflection of chair. And some are better than others. We have chairs, for example, that don't have backs. They're not quite as functional. They represent the ideal chair um, less accurately and, and not as, as good. We have other chairs that function very well. And of course, throughout the history of furniture making, there have been some that are more comfortable, some that are more uh, functional, some that are more... Uh, artistic in nature. There are, there are various and different realities when it comes to the idea of chair. They're all different, but they all share in common. They're all defined by ch as chairs by the fact that they represent this ideal chair that exists as a form. 
In other words, it's, a, it's an abstract objective standard to which everything in this world must conform in order to be identified as the thing that it purports to represent. So anything that we want to call chair in this world must look like this form of chair. Now, for Plato, that's true of things. That's also true of ideas and concepts. And for our purposes today, it's true of things like righteousness and justice and justification. And so what Plato would say is there is an abstract ideal or an abstract form that is righteousness, that is goodness, purity. You know, each of these different concepts, although related, would have their own form. And a person or a thing in this world is righteous to the extent that it conforms to that quintessential example, the form of righteousness or justice or love or goodness. There is, in other words, an objective reality or an objective abstract thing called, and in this case, righteousness, that we must conform to as people of God. As the church was growing and developing its theology and thinking deeply about what God was calling them to and what God had done in Jesus and, and how it can communicate God's truth to the world, the early church thinkers, Clement, Origen, and others, they saw the philosophy of the world. Even if We even see Paul doing this at times. They see the philosophy of the world and they say, oh, that's, that's good, that's true, there's something right about that, and I can use that to explain the truth of God. Or in some cases, in the case of Paul at times, he says, oh, well, you have this philosophical problem. God actually is the answer. And so there is this interplay between philosophy and theology, philosophy and religion, particularly Christianity, in which they borrow from each other and one influences the other. And so in the same way we said earlier, the way in which our world and our culture uses the term apocalypse informs what we think when we read the term in the biblical text the way in which that first century world thought about things, and in this instance, the way in which they had accepted the Platonic worldview informed the way that they thought about God and Jesus and his truth. Several centuries later, there is a resurgence of Platonic thought that's known as the Neoplatonic movement. And it's during this time that Augustine, who's thinking deeply about uh, his faith and his practice and his religion and the things of God, he will grab and use much of Plato's philosophy to explain his theology and the way that he thinks about God. And he is such an influential thinker that that becomes embedded from that point on deeply into the psyche and the way in which the church thinks about itself. Fast forward from Augustine a thousand years into what is known as the late medieval church in the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. And we have moved into this time in which we have identified holiness, righteousness, justice as these objective standards to which we are to conform in order to live rightly with God. And it is our sinful action, which is missing, those, missing the mark, which is failing to live up to those standards, those objective standards uh, that plagues the church by the time we get to the turn of the 15th century, when Luther will come onto the stage, and so the stage is set for the Reformation, the church has abused its power, its authority, and these concepts and twisted the truth of the gospel into something that had become faith through works. So 
we, we have understood that God requires us to live to this standard. We have failed to live to that standard. And at every point in which we miss that mark and we do something wrong, we must come to the church, we must confess it, and we must do some sort of penance to right the scales. So, justice has become at this point a, a scale system, which sounds very familiar to the way we think about it, um, in which we act wrongly and that scale is tipped. And so, we much must come to the church and confess. We're given a penance, something that we ought to do to show our uh, our failure and our contrition and our repentance. And through the act of penance, that scale gets rebalanced. This gets taken way too far. And in a church that had become increasingly corrupt, they start selling indulgences. And it turns out that not only do you have to confess and do penance, but if you fail to do that, then you have marks against you. And that's what propagates the idea of purgation or purgatory. And so you go to purgatory in some sense to pay for the things that you did not confess. Well, the church says you can buy what they call an indulgence. And by buying this indulgence, this is, they say, the ultimate act of contrition or repentance. And you literally buy your way out of the sins that you have not confessed. As we look back, of course, we think that's ridiculous, as did Luther, and it was Luther who reacted strongly and nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg and sparked what we know as the Reformation. And as a church that has a Lutheran heritage, we very much sit in that Protestant Reformation and have inherited a lot of what Luther was saying. And Luther understood rightly that our status as righteous, God's work of justification what it means for God to do justice in the world is that through his son's sacrifice, we are made righteous. And that is something that we accept by faith. He does away with all the penance and the purgatory and the indulgences and throws them all aside and say, those are complete corruptions of the message of the gospel. What makes us righteous is not our works, but our faith. And as Luther and those that will follow him talk about this process of justification. Justification uh, is the process by which we are made righteous. And in the Greek and in the Hebrew, righteousness, justification, and justice are all the same word. They're all the same root word. And so it's the same thing. We have obviously different terms, um, but justice and righteousness, justification and righteousness, those are the same thing. And as the reformers begin to talk about how we are made righteous, rejecting the works righteousness of the church up to that point. They're talking about the reality that we have missed this objective standard that God has set forth for us. And God in his great grace has sent Jesus and that through the work of Jesus on the cross, God that can look at us and forgive our sins and deem us, reckon us righteous. And so we have failed to miss the mark. We have sinned. We are stained, tainted. We have marks against us. But because of what Jesus has done, God, we use the term imputes, takes Jesus' righteousness and assigns it to us and then put, moves us from the category of sinful or guilty into the category of innocent or pure. And so, we, we refer to this in the Lutheran and Protestant tradition as imputed righteousness. And this was the act that God has accomplished through the work of Jesus 
and it is by faith, it is by reaching out an empty hand and receiving the grace of God who would give us this gift, we are reckoned righteous. So righteousness is through faith. That explanation and that conversation around justification and righteousness hinges very much on a judicial understanding of righteousness, that it is God as a good and righteous judge who makes the declaration, who makes the judgment that we are now righteous. And this should sound very familiar to most of us, especially as a church. Uh, we are Lutheran as our heritage, and so we have been handed in large measure, as has the entire Protestant tradition, this understanding of grace and justification by grace and faith alone. But what is also true of it is it continues to make the assumption that righteousness and justice, love, grace, all of these, these things are platonic forms. There is this abstract standard and we as individuals fail to meet that standard and that's what sin is and that's the thing that Jesus has come to correct. As we turn to the scriptures, the stories that we have in our Bible and we understand justice as a tipping of the scale, a writing of the scale, um, which is what Luther had been talking about in the church since Augustine and, and before that in the Platonic tradition had understood justice to be, that justice is a making right of the scale that in essence, what is just is that everyone gets what they deserve. If we understand that as justice as an abstract concept, and then we go back and we read the stories and the work of God through the nation of Israel, and we we hear things about Abraham being reckoned righteous because of his faith and the way he works. And we read the way in which God calls Israel back despite their having broken the covenant. What's, what gets set up is this sort of odd tension between justice and forgiveness that in order for God to forgive, he must set aside justice because the whole idea of God and the work of Jesus and the forgiveness that God extends is that we no longer get what we deserve. As we look at the cross itself, if we have this idea, which most of us do, that justice is we get what we deserve, we're forced into a paradoxical and uncomfortable conclusion that we have to make, and that is on the cross, the sinless one, the one who was blameless, the one who had done no wrong, the one who had lived his life perfectly, God crushes him. And as Paul will talk about it, this is the ultimate act of righteousness. And so we now have this glaring paradox, which gets brought up a lot. And I don't, I don't know if you all have heard it or if you've thought about this before, and it ends up being one of those questions that we just can't talk about. But what we're forced to admit is that God's act of forgiveness through the cross is the most unjust act that has ever occurred in the world. And so what Paul will say is God's righteousness displayed on the cross is somehow at the same time righteous and yet we're forced to admit unjust. How can that be? Well, the problem as some of you have no doubtly surmised is that Plato was wrong. There are not abstract forms of things like justice and righteousness and justification and goodness and love and all of these virtues, these fruits of the spirit that we claim as Christians do not exist in some abstract 
objective reality. They're not some standard that's set out on a list somewhere or exists somewhere, and, and our job is to conform to that standard. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a standard. There absolutely is. Paul tells us, for example, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is the standard that God sets out for us to live into. But what is important to understand and the point that we want to make today is that that those standards are not objective and abstracted. Those standards all exist within the concept and the reality of relationship. In the tradition of the Hebrew text and the ways in which Paul was using the, the terms righteousness, justice, justification, in which Jesus talked about such things, to be righteous is to act rightly in relationship to those around you. To be righteous is to fulfill the obligations that you have to the relationship. If we think all the way back to the Genesis narrative and we think about Adam and Eve and the sin and their unrighteous behavior, think for a moment about what the sin was and how we talk about sin in general and, and that particular sin. What they did wrong, of course, was to eat the fruit. But there is no objective universal truth or reality that says it is sinful to eat fruit. It was sinful to eat that particular fruit. And why was it sinful to eat that particular fruit? It was because God had set up a relationship between himself and his creation, namely Adam and Eve, and that relationship had stipulations and boundaries. And the primary, and as far as we know, the sole boundary of that relationship was that they were not to eat of this thing. They were not to eat of the fruit of this particular tree. And so when they did that, they sinned, but their sin was not a matter of transgressing some universal standard. The sin was that they broke the rules of the relationship. Fast forward to the call of Abraham, which is a story that gets picked up by James and certainly by Paul in a number of cases, in which we talk about Abraham being reckoned righteous by his faith. Let's think through that story for a moment. Here is Abraham called by God, we're told that he believes God, believes God's promises, steps into the covenant that God sets before him. He sets into the covenant that God sets before him, and it is in doing the things that God has called him to do. It's in his faithful action that he's reckoned righteous. Now, this doesn't mean that Abraham did everything right and all of a sudden he was not wrong at all or had no sin in his life. He clearly did not follow the rules. Of course, he goes and takes having a child into his own hands, and we have all sorts of trouble as a result of that. He was reckoned righteous by God, not because he conformed to a standard of right behavior, but rather he conformed to the relationship, the covenant that God set before him. So, Abraham became righteous in as much as he met the obligations and lived within the stipulation and the boundaries that God set before him. And he becomes unrighteous when he fails to do that. And what is powerful about the creation story and the Adam and Eve story is that it tells us something about ourselves, about all of humanity, to the extent that we all have inherited sin. We all inherit the propensity, the desire, the inclination to act unrighteously, to transgress the relationship that we have with God. As I said before, there certainly are standards, but those standards are stipulated and dictated by the relationship we have with God. And so, as sinful beings, as people who are unrighteous by default, humanity lives under the curse of sin and death in an unrighteous state because it has neglected the relationship that God 
had called it into. But God, in response, is supremely righteous. And what that means is not that God is sinless and blameless, although he certainly is, but what it means to say that God is infinitely and purely righteous is to say that he will always be faithful to his obligation to the relationships they set up. God is always, has always been, will always be faithful and will fulfill the obligations that he has to his creation. And so it is because God is righteous, it is in his righteousness that he calls Abraham, that he establishes Israel, that he establishes a covenant, which itself establishes the relationship and sets the boundaries for the nation of Israel and the relationship that he will have with them. He develops that covenant through Moses, through David, and he fulfills that confidence in the person of Jesus. And it is through Jesus' actions and his covenant faithfulness that God's righteous action, God's relationship action, his working to renew and restore the relationship is broken open to the entire world. When Jesus is asked, what is the highest and best commandment? He, of course, responds to love God, and he quickly adds, the second is just like it, to love your neighbor. And in doing so, he picks up on the law in Deuteronomy and the theme that runs throughout the entire Old Testament and through the New Testament, that what it means to be a person of God, to be in relationship with God, is to love God and to love each other. The standard is relationship. The standards are all encompassed in and live within the relationship that we have with God and with each other. When the prophets of Israel speak the words of God, they, without fail, are speaking about the ways in which the nation of Israel, the people of God, have failed in their relationship with God and with each other. It's why they rail on the nation and say on behalf of God, it is not your sacrifices I care about, it's whether or not you love and take care of the widows and the poor and the needy. Israel is deemed to be unrighteous because it has failed to live in accordance with its obligations to its God and to its people and its neighbors. We see this concept of righteousness come out particularly and clearly in the Psalms and also in the prophets. And so we're gonna spend a little bit of time now working through some of the scripture, a number of the Psalms and a couple of the passages from Isaiah in particular. We're gonna turn now to the 31st Psalm. And in the first verse, it says, "'In you, O Lord, I seek refuge.'" Do not let me ever be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Here we see the psalmist crying out to God. His enemies are pushing in on him and he's asking God to step in. And as he does that, he relies not on God's sinless or blameless nature. He calls out to his righteousness. And and if we have our typical misunderstanding of that term, what we read is that he's asking God, because God is sinless and blameless, to step in and do something. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It makes much more sense once we understand how righteousness was used. What we see here is the psalmist calling upon God's righteous behavior and righteous inclinations, righteous nature in the midst of the relationship. He's calling on God's obligation to make good on his promises. Let's skip over to Psalm 71. And in the second verse, it says, in your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. It's the exact same petition again, once again, calling upon God's righteousness, which is God's faithfulness to the relationship. God has established the nation of Israel. The psalmist here as a representative of Israel is calling upon God to do the thing for Israel and for him that he has promised to do. 
It's not a call for God to be sinless and blameless, to be just in the way that we would understand justice. It's a call for God to do that which he has promised he will do. And then further on into verse 16 of the same chapter, I will come praising the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will praise your righteousness and yours alone. And there we see that righteousness is tied to the actions, the deeds of God, the things that God has done and to continue, maintain and strengthen the relationship that God has with his people. There's a great example of what we're talking about in the 112th Psalm. We're gonna read that in its entirety today. It says, praise the Lord. Happy are those who fear the Lord, who greatly delight in his commandments. Their descendants will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses and their righteousness endures forever. They rise in the darkness as a light for the upright. They are gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with those who deal generously and lend who conduct their affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved for they will be remembered forever. They are not afraid of evil tidings. Their hearts are firm, secure in the Lord. Their hearts are steady. They will not be afraid. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have distributed freely. They have given to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn is exalted in honor. The wicked see it and are angry. They gnash their teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked comes to nothing. In this Psalm, we see very clearly the link between justice, righteousness, and lending and giving to the poor, being generous, being merciful, being gracious all of the stipulations that God has set forth in the way that the people ought to relate to God, but more importantly, and to the point in this Psalm, to the other people of their nation. To be righteous is to meet the obligations of the relationship that God has set out. God has said, you must take care of the poor. You must take care of the needy. You must do justice. And that's what he means by doing justice. And to be righteous is to fulfill those obligations. In Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments so that those who fulfill their obligation, God will fulfill his obligation in turn, his righteousness, his faithfulness to his promise lasts from generation to generation, from children to children to children and on and on. In the 143rd Psalm, first and second verses, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications in your faithfulness. Answer me in your righteousness. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. An acknowledgement there at the end that we have failed to be righteous in the way that God is, but a call to God's righteousness, to his faithfulness, to his promise, to the relationship that he set up, that he would hear his servant. Into Isaiah, the 42nd chapter, verses six and seven, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Here we see clearly that it is in his righteousness that God has taken the nation of Israel, taking his representatives by the hand, led them into relationship with himself for the benefit of the world. It is God's righteousness, which is the quality of God that causes him to always live rightly and in accordance with the promises that he has made to his people and to his world. In the 46th chapter, verses 12 and 13, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not tarry. 
I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Here we see God speaking of Israel's unrighteousness, their stubbornness, their reluctance and inability to live as he has called them to live, their failure to live in accordance with the obligations that they have that he has set forth for them. But in spite of that and in the face of that, he speaks of his own righteousness. His righteousness is not far off. And when his righteousness comes and when he makes good on his righteous promises, when he fulfills his obligation through the covenant, salvation will come. Salvation is the ultimate outworking of God's righteous nature, his character, his obligation to the world that he created. And so when we understand righteousness in this way as the quality of God and the call for ourselves to live rightly in relationship with God and with each other, when we realize that what it means for God to be righteous is that he would create, maintain, restore the relationship that he has with his creation, when we turn to the cross and to the conundrum, the paradox that we had earlier, in which we look at the cross and say that Paul says this is the ultimate expression of God's righteousness, but at the same time, it is the height of injustice. When we realize what righteousness truly is, and we realize that justification is, the, is God's process of restoring us to relationship. It is not making us sinless as we have thought it to be, but rather putting us back into relationship with himself. That justice is a healing. Justice is restoration. That justice is not punishment and everyone getting what they deserve, but rather everyone being restored into a right relationship with God and himself. We can then look at the cross and say, yes, this is justice. This is righteousness. It is unfair. We could say it is not right. It is not just in the way that we would think about justice, but it is, as Paul says, the ultimate act of justice and righteousness. It is the thing that God does that he has promised. It is his promise fulfilled that brings the world back into relationship with himself. And so when Luther looks at the, the atrocities of the church and he looks at what they've been saying about righteousness and justification through works, he says, no, it's, it's by faith. He's right. When he says, it's none of our work, it's all God's work, he's right. But what he misses, what he flattens with his understanding of justice and righteousness and what we need to recapture is that it is through God's righteous action and then also through his gift of the spirit that then allows us to be righteous. We are righteous only by the gift of his mercy the work that he has done through Jesus, but also the gifting of his spirit so that he is ultimately righteous and he has fulfilled his promises to bring us back into relationship with him, to restore, to reconcile, to heal, but then also gifts us his spirit. And it is that gift that then allows us to turn back to God and to be righteous ourselves. So when we talk about the reformed ideas of imputed righteousness, this idea that we have just been picked up and moved from one category of sinner and guilty into a category of blameless and innocent. It misses so much. It misses God's fulfillment of his obligation, but also God's empowering of us to now live righteously. It is more than just a status. It is a new reality. It is a new creation. It is a new birth now empowered through the spirit of God to live rightly in accordance 
with the relationships that we have with God and with other people. And this is where the rubber really hits the road for us and how coming to this truer understanding of what it means to be righteous, what it means for God to be righteous, what it means to have been justified, what it means for us to seek justice, this definition matters and it matters greatly. If we think justice is everyone getting what they deserve, well, when someone steps out of line, when someone breaks the law, when someone does something atrocious, when they transgress the law, when they break relationships, we seek to balance the scale, we immediately go to punishment. But punishment is not the message of the cross. Punishment is not the righteousness of God. Punishment is not justice. Punishment is not justification. Righteousness as displayed in the person of Jesus on the cross, the act of God in that moment is not punishment. It is the self-sacrificial love that sets aside God's right to punish and instead heals, draws near, restores, and makes right. And so as we think about people who are called as disciples of Jesus, people who are called back into a relationship with the one true God who has done this for us. When we talk about seeking justice, what we mean is making things right. So when we look at others who have done something wrong, the question is not how can we punish them? The question is how can we now make this situation right? And yes, that often means some sort of restitution. Someone who's done something wrong needs to make up for it. But that making up for it is not an act of punishment. That is an act of restoration. That is an act of healing. Our obligations as Christians, as followers of Christ, is to something much more profound and much more deep and much more important than not sinning. Our call is to righteousness, and that means we are called to be healers, to be agents of restoration, to bring others back into relationship, not to punish or make them feel guilty or bad, for that's not what God has done to us. God's righteousness to us is simply said, I forgive you and I want to be in relationship with you again. And as agents of his son, as his hands and feet, we are called to do that as well. It is our call, it is our vocation to be agents of restoration and healing to this world. It is in the second letter that Paul writes to his church in Corinth in which he addresses directly the ministry of the Christian, the ministry of the church. In it, he says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Amen.